the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Those of you who have been following recent basic income news may have heard about a proposal that came out just in the last few weeks in Australia. Now, most of our conversations on this podcast tend to focus on U.S. policy, but this really, the conversation around this really is an international one. And what, what happens in places around the world can shape perspectives, uh, and certainly there can be similarities and also differences on policy solutions in different places. So uh, for this episode, we'll be speaking with Emma Dawson. She's the executive director of Per Capita, which is a progressive think tank in Australia. And we'll be discussing uh, a recent proposal there uh, around basic income, which she has some concerns about. So welcome, Emma. Hey, nice to be with you. So we've had some guests from countries around the world in the past. And like Jim said, we tend to focus on the US and the challenges we have here and, um, and what basic income might look like in this context. Uh, however, as we discussed in a recent episode with Professor Alma Zalecki, the assumptions and values inherent to the social safety net in a particular country have a major impact on what new policy solutions will prove effective. So to start with, can you just tell us generally about the current state of the economy and social programs in Australia and what challenges you currently face? Sure. Sure. So Australia's a growing economy. We're a, a reasonably large economy. We're a wealthy nation, We're second only to Switzerland in terms of wealth per capita. Uh, and we actually hold the world record now for the, for the longest period of uninterrupted economic growth. So we're in our 26th year without a recession. Uh, and we, unlike a lot of countries, we didn't go into recession during the GFC. We had a, a government that implemented a fairly Keynesian-style uh, fiscal uh, stimulus package at the time and, and kept a lot of people in work that otherwise uh, almost certainly would have been thrown out of work. Um, we also have a fairly strong social safety net. We have the most tightly targeted tax and transfer system in the OECD. Um, so our welfare spend is very uh, carefully targeted to those who need it. There's not, uh, there is a degree of so-called middle-class welfare, but certainly not as much as, as you might find in other comparable jurisdictions. We have a reasonably strong minimum wage. Um, it's, it's uh, I think, $18.39 Australian, which is, which is a little under $15 US an hour, uh, is the absolute minimum wage. We also have, of course, universal health care. Um, so we have some some measures in place in our safety net that certainly aren't there in the US uh, context. At the same time, uh, all those headline figures look really good, but we do have uh, a higher unemployment rate than the US. It's currently sitting around 5.5, 5.6%, and that hasn't budged uh, for a long time. Um, we have a very high rate of underutilisation in the labour force, so we have about 1.1 million out of our population of 25 million. We have about 1.1 million people that are looking for more work than they've currently got, and you only need to be employed for one hour a week here to, to count as employed in the statistics. Uh, and our wage growth is pretty stagnant. It's sitting at around 1.9% per annum at the moment, uh, which is barely keeping up with inflation. And our inflation measures, of course, uh, take into account a whole range of costs and prices, um, but the most significant prices, things that are, are not that are essential spending like electricity, housing, healthcare, and education, those costs are rising at a rate rapidly outstripping wage growth. So, people in Australia are feeling squeezed. Our economy looks to be in good shape from the headline figures, but the re reality on the ground is that uh, I would argue, and certainly most people on on my side of the political debate here are arguing that prosperity is not being fairly shared at the moment with working people and particularly with people that aren't working, that are out of the workforce for whatever reason. 
Uh, our new start payment, which is our unemployment benefit, is I would say criminally low. It's as low as 250 Australian dollars a week, which is well below the poverty line. It hasn't risen in real terms for a quarter of a century. Uh, our pension age pension rate was was lifted uh, under the last Labor government. That's uh, our our you know we you would call them liberals, although the Liberal Party is our Conservative Party here. The age pension rate was given a boost then, but it's it's still barely adequate, particularly for people that don't own their home uh, and single renters find it very difficult on the age pension and similar payments like the disability support payment and other um, income support measures I would argue uh, need lifting considerably uh, in a country that as I said is is per capita the second wealthiest uh, in the world. Now there's been quite a bit of media attention directed to a recent proposal from Australian Senator Richard Di Natale leader of the Australian Green Party, to establish a universal basic income in Australia. I, I know you have some concerns around that proposal, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But can you start by describing what exactly has been proposed here? Yeah, well, it's difficult to do so because it really didn't, there wasn't a lot of meat on the bones of, of Di Natale's proposal. He made it at an address to the National Press Club, which is our um, you know, primary forum in, in Canberra, the capital for uh, politicians to, to speak to the to the press over here. Um, and really the headline of that address were, there were a few, it was a bit of a grab bag of policies, as, as I said in my article critiquing um, his announcement. Uh, but the UBI was kind of thrown in there. Uh, and all he said, literally, and I can quote him, he said, that's why we need a universal basic income. We need a UBI that ensures everyone has access to an adequate level of income, as well as access to universal social services, health, education and housing. A UBI is a bold move towards equality. It epitomises a government which looks after its citizens. It's about an increased role for government in our rapidly changing world. And that was about it. And the Greens haven't announced any other detail on that policy proposal on their website or in any of their policy documents. So uh, it was really a, a kind of, look, we think this is a good thing, but we haven't we haven't thought about it much further. We haven't costed it. We have it's it's not a detailed or costed policy proposal from the Greens at this point in time. That's uh, pretty much all all that I've been able to find. Although their their research institute, each of the political parties here has an affiliated think tank or research institute, and the the Greens think tank. Um, uh, certainly has has been advocating for a, a, a UBI for some time, uh, but it hasn't made it any further into formal policy uh, adoption by the party as yet, as far as I can see. So e even at that high level description of, of the policy, you've got some concerns around it. I believe a number of aspects don't make sense. So can you just talk us through some of those concerns and also share what new or expanded policies you feel would best address current social challenges? Sure. So um, the UBI debate here is a live one, as it is in the States, on, on what I would call my side of the political divide. Um, I'm a progressive. I'm very concerned about social justice. Our think tank per capita is focused on fighting inequality in Australia. So uh, UBI has been a live issue for us for a while. And I'm certainly um, a bit of an outlier uh, compared to some of the other thinkers in, in our space. Uh, on the UBI, um, and many of my colleagues, some of them within per capita, some in affiliated organisations that we work with, are proponents. Um, my concerns are they're, they're multiple, and they they come from a primarily a practical point of view, but also some philosophical concerns. And it's important to be um, clear that when I talk about a UBI in Australia, the U almost um, with everybody stands for universal rather than 
unconditional. Um, I have no problem with the basic income part. It's the universal part that, that gives me cause for concern. Uh, and particularly in the way that Di Natale talked about it, he said, um, literally he said, we need a UBI that ensures everyone has access to an adequate level of income, as well as access to universal social services, health, education and housing. Now, I don't want to see any of those services disappear. I think they're critical and they're a fundamental part of what makes Australia uh, a pretty good place to live. But if you are going to fund a UBI at an adequate income level, and in Australia the, that poverty level would require every adult to get about 23000 Australian dollars a year uh, to be above the poverty line, then some pretty reputable costings done by Peter Whiteford at the Australian National University here has found that that could be around between 250 and $350 billion a year in additional tax revenue. So even if you take the roughly $160 billion a year that Australia currently spends on income support on its social safety, uh, social services programs, um, unemployment benefit, age, pension, disability support, etc. Even if you uh, got rid of all of those payments and replaced them with a UBI, you couldn't save all that 160. You'd, you'd need to retain some of it because it's um, spent on administration and, and, and bureaucratic systems and so on. Uh, you'd still need to raise at least another $300 billion a year in tax revenue. And uh, that's a pretty big ask at the moment. Our, our, um, our government... Uh, parliament system isn't quite as riven as, as bipartisanship, a conflict between the parties as yours, but it's getting there. And uh, we have a, a conservative government at the moment that is all about cutting taxes for businesses and cutting spending on social services. Um, and the idea that we're going to raise another $300 billion anytime in the near future, I think, is fanciful. If it were to be done, um, some early costings by um, Ben Davison and Miranda Stewart at the Australian National University, uh, which are underway at the moment, but their early findings have been that there'd be need to be a minimum income tax rate uh, on on working people of around forty percent. It's currently sitting at the average is about twenty seven. Uh, so the average so the average working uh, income tax rate would lift by thirteen uh, percent. On high income earners, it'd be as high as seventy eight percent. It would require a wealth tax, which would mean placing a tax on the value of the family home, uh, which in Australian political history has proved to be, uh, you know, political suicide for anyone who suggests that. Now, I do support wealth tax, actually. I think it's where we need to be as a country. I think taxing income rather than wealth is inherently uh, regressive. But uh, to shift from what we have now to a tax and transfer system that would require such a massive change to the tax base, I think is going to be virtually impossible to achieve. So, that's my first very practical concern about the suggestion. Um, I'm interested in what we can do now to help people that are living on $250 a week while they look for work or living on uh, $400 a week uh, as, on the age pension uh, and they don't own their own home or people on, who are being sh you know, forced into disability support payments that, that are barely adequate to live on. Um, we have a, a system at the moment that's incredibly punitive towards people that need our help. Uh, our our current unemployment benefits cost us about $11 billion a year. So if we were to increase that payment, that $250 a week payment, by just the $50 that the Australian Council of Social Services uh, and Union Movement are suggesting, um, that's, you know, that's around $2 billion, uh, which is, you know, 1% of the cost, less than 1% of the cost of a UBI. And I'd like to see that happen tomorrow. Um, so that's my first concern, really. 
But then I, the, the thing that attracted the most criticism and I think the most misunderstanding um, from the article I published a couple of weeks ago was when I said that a UBI robs people of agency. Um, and that's probably something I should explain a little bit further. Yeah, please, go ahead. So my concern there is, is not that giving people who are in need of income support for whatever reason a cash payment of their fair share of, of government, uh, of tax taxation revenue and of national revenue and prosperity robs them of agency. I don't believe that at all. I think we should give people a decent basic income without a whole heap of conditions that makes it impossible to get. And that's just that just provides them with dignity. And there is a lot of evidence from around the world that if you do that, they're much more likely to be productive, um, find purpose and have agency over their lives. Uh, that's So that wasn't what I was saying. What I'm addressing is specifically when people hold out the UBI as a solution to the disappearance of work. Uh, the, this argument that the robots are coming and they're going to take all our jobs and there's not going to be any work for anyone anymore, and so the answer is just to replace income. My argument is that uh, that's very nice and very good and it, and it will keep people um, out of the poverty line, but it... it it negates the other values of work, the values of work that go beyond providing income, um, which are that it does give people a sense of purpose. It allows people to feel that they're in control of their lives, that they're managing uh, adequately to provide for themselves and their families, that they can do that themselves without relying on support from an external party. Um, and I think a lot of advocates of the UBI too easily dismiss the value of work beyond uh, income. And I know that a lot of arguments about the UBI are saying, well, it allows people to do other things and more meaningful things and it, and it supports entrepreneurship, etc., etc. It has to be said at a really high level for that to be the case, um, even more than the $300 billion cost that I was talking about earlier. For people to be able to genuinely thrive and be creative and, and perhaps start a new business or, or pursue some artistic pursuit, um, you need to provide them with a pretty serious level of income. Even if you did that, not all people are going to do that. Not all people are waiting to write the next novel or or, or start the next, you know, Uber or, or whatever. Um, a lot of people find value in work just from going to work, being with other people. Um, it's the social aspects of work. The value of just getting up every day with something to do with a purpose uh, that that allows you to provide for yourself. That work itself doesn't always have to be, for, for a lot of people, incredibly creatively fulfilling. Um, there is value in, in what in Australia, and I know in the US as well, we've traditionally called blue-collar jobs. Um, and I think there is a worrying tendency amongst a lot of uh, highly educated, progressive, caring advocates of the UBI to dismiss blue-collar work and say, look, those jobs are crap anyway, and if they go, people will be able to do better things. A lot of people engaged in those jobs don't think they're crap. You know, they, they actually get a lot of value out of going and, and working in a manufacturing job or a retail job and engaging with people. And so I'm a lot more concerned that we don't just lie down and say the robots are coming and there's nothing we can do about it and let's implement a UBI. I think there are things we can do about it. We can protect work and the value of work and the inherent dignity that comes with having a job. Uh, sure, if some jobs are disrupted and there is a lot of evidence that a lot of industries will be disrupted. They have been throughout history right since the first industrial revolution. Um, there are going to be people that are thrown out of jobs that they've held for a long time and are going to need a lot of help 
uh, to find something else and some of them will not. Some of them will be at a stage in their life where retraining or uh, reskilling or adapting to a new job is going to be difficult, if not if not impossible, then too difficult to manage in the time available. And we absolutely need a decent um, level of support for them, a basic income for them. But I'm not uh, happy to say that should be our primary focus. Our primary focus should be to help as many people make the transition as possible and find something meaningful and rewarding to do with their lives. The concerns you just laid out very much echo concerns that we often hear in the United States. And I, I think we've, we've spoken on the podcast a few times about this in the past, but I do think that there is a, a challenge that arises when you mix and match basic income as a means of addressing current challenges versus basic income as a way of dealing with coming rampant job loss from automation. And I think where I think our perspective has landed is that from the automation perspective, basic income would be necessary but not sufficient. That if you actually end up in a world where there really is not enough work to go around, as someone who wants to support people, you should make sure everyone has money, but that you would absolutely need to have programs or changes in culture beyond that in order to in ensure that the structure that jobs provide today, that the lack of that would would not cause much larger issues. Yeah, I think look, I'm on, I'm on board with that. I think I'm I'm still questioning why we why we're all still working forty hours a week when you know it's seventy five years since Keynes told us we'd be working fifteen hours a week. Um, I'm a big advocate for the shorter working week. I think uh, we need to divide up the hours of work a lot more evenly than we do. We know in Australia that around one in five people want to work less than they're working and another one in five people can't get enough hours and, and there's a crazy mismatch there. Um, if we could reduce our working week to, you know, 30 hours a week. In Australia, the, the basic rate is 37.5, but we have some of the world's worst overtime workers, people that work long hours without being paid, particularly in the professional classes. Um, if we could reduce the working week to 30 hours a week for a start, we'd see a lot fairer distribution of hours. It would be incredibly helpful, particularly for women um, who continue to take a disproportionate burden of unpaid work. And, you know, we haven't talked much about unpaid work yet, but it's a critical part of this debate, as you know, as you, as you often talk about on your podcast. I've listened um, to a few episodes. Um, I think that, that a fairer division of working hours with a shorter working week uh, and a cultural shift that could see, you know, men and women equally say, well, I'm leaving to do school pickup today. I'm going to take the Friday to, to, do, the, to do the laundry and the grocery shopping um, and share that, that unpaid burden a lot more evenly. We'll see a massive shift in society, and the way the old ways of working, where we we structure all of our social security payments, our, our working week hours, our uh, even our transport and commute times, around the idea that the man goes out to work at eight seven thirty in the morning and comes home at six thirty at night, and the woman picks up the slack at home. That's a nonsense, and it's always been a nonsense. Frankly, it's a particularly middle class you know, mid-20th century phenomenon. I, I come from a originally working-class northern English background and the women in my 
uh, ancestry pretty much went out to work at the age of 12, just like the men did, um, in cotton mills and so on. So working class women have always worked. Um, and the structures that we have in place in society just just need to shift massively. Um, and I, I completely agree with you that those things are absolutely necessary. Uh, at the same time as we have that we do look at what's in place to support people when they can't work for whatever reason. Um, and there are there are good reasons to not be able to work. For a start in Australia, um, there aren't enough jobs. You know, if, if a colleague of mine said the other day, if every job candidate in Australia was the absolutely perfect candidate that was immaculately presented in a suit and tie uh, with a polished CV and exemplary experience, the unemployment rate would be exactly what it is today because there aren't enough jobs for the people looking for work. Quite apart from that, there are people that can't work because of disability or illness or because they're caring for a family member, children, um, elderly parents, another family member with disability or illness. Um, they may have a mental illness. Um, there are legitimate reasons that people can't work and we need to support them better when they can't. But if we could divvy up the work that is there for the people that want to do it in a more rational and reasonable factor and all get a little bit more time to look at the other aspects of our lives as well as paid labour, uh, I think the world would be a much better place. Yeah, I certainly share a lot of those goals. I, I see basic income as something that could help us get there to, you know, perhaps a, a shorter work week and, and a, you know, more equitable, better distributed um, labor all around. Um, in terms of cost, um, in just in terms of, you know, how much you'd have to give to, to each person and, um, you know, what, what the total figure there would be, it is, you know, a, a very large number. One way that people have talked about addressing that is through a negative income tax. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, there's sort of two, two basic ways you could do it. Uh, it could be either um, through just distributing variable payments with the amount determined by an individual's current income level, or it can be implemented through the tax code with full basic income payments going to everyone and increasing the tax level to retrieve the funds from higher income earners. Uh, you, yeah. you started to touch on that on a previous answer, but I'm curious first if you support any implementation of a negative income tax, and second, does your support differ between those two designs? Um, look again, to just up front, you know, I want to make clear that the the basic income part I, I support. It's the universality that's the problem, and that's what we're talking about here. Whether it's the basic income model or the or the negative income tax model, um, and no, I don't for 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 practical purposes and, and partly philosophical purposes too. Um, for practical reasons, even through even if it was implemented through the tax code, which tends to be the model that's talked about in Australia, right, because we, we have a strong tax and tra transfer system here and progressive taxation uh, rates, uh, it, it just essentially leads to what people call tax churn. Um, and I think the you know, the costs of administering that are pretty, I, I don't see how they're defensible when you're essentially handing out money only to get it back through the tax system. So, you know, people don't receive that. It just basically would lift their tax-free tax -free threshold. Uh, and not by much. I mean, our tax-free threshold here, the amount of money you can earn before you start paying taxes, currently about $18,500 a year. A UBI set at the poverty level would be about 4500 more than that. Um, but the income tax on wealthy people would still, in order to make that payment a livable payment and in order for the UBI to work the way advocates say it will work, which is it allows people to refuse badly paid or work or work with poor conditions, um, it needs to be, you know, a significant payment. So I don't think that, um, that we're going to get 
agreement from the Australian populace uh, to lift tax rates on the wealthy by that amount that drastically that quickly i just i just don't believe it'll happen and i think there are there are other priorities um but more than that i it, it, a lot of the arguments that i hear is well you know if you give it to everybody then it destigmatizes welfare if everybody's receiving the payment then those punitive approaches that we see towards people receiving income support go away because everyone gets it so uh, then rich people won't complain about paying for poor people. That argument just doesn't hold water with me. Firstly, because if rich people aren't actually seeing a cash payment because it's being done through their tax system, it, they, they won't perceive it that way anyway. But even if they did, I think we're better than that. I think it's up to those of us on the progressive side to persuade people that paying their fair share of tax to support citizens, their fellow citizens that are in need, is the right thing to do. It's the price we pay for civilization, and uh, we can do it by persuading people rather than bribing them, which is essentially what a universal income is. It's saying, well, if we give it to everybody, then people won't complain about those that need it, and they'll just take it because they think they're getting it too. I, I maybe, maybe have a little bit more faith in human nature than that, and I think the left for too long has capitulated to, to neoliberal arguments around tax and spend and reducing the size of government and the fact that the, the, those on welfare are a drain on the rest of us. And it's time we fought back directly against those attacks rather than, than capitulated to them and said, okay, then we'll just bribe everybody to be, to be good people and pay their fair share. I, I don't, I, I find that, I can't, I can't make that capitulation. We recently released in Australia a report uh, that we did at our think tank for Anglicare, which is one of our social service providers, um, that found that the the tax of the cost of foregone revenue to our federal budget, the money that that we're not collecting from people in the highest twenty percent of income in the country because of tax concessions, things that we allow them to do to reduce their taxable income, um, like you know um, salary sacrifice into their superannuation saving, their retirement savings, and get a tax discount and things like that. That's costing our budget sixty eight billion dollars a year, uh, and if we if you average that out, that's thirty seven dollars a week for every taxpayer. That's going to make the wealthy the wealthy people here more wealthy. The government came out in January here with a with an attack on on people on welfare, saying every person on welfare is costing the Australian taxpayer eighty three dollars a week. And if you broke that down, the cost of someone living on an unemployment benefit to the average taxpayer, as they like to say, per week, was was six bucks. Six dollars a week was coming out of my pocket to support someone on income support. But thirty seven dollars a week is coming out of my pocket to support people so they can have a holiday house and 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 a luxury car. Um, I think we can win that debate without handing out cash payments to the wealthy. I think, I mean, that's, I think, a great point, and it brings up some almost philosophical questions about, and I'm, I'd be curious to know more about what, what the specific perspectives are there, but certainly in the U.S., the sort of welfare queen myth, this idea that, yes, you have this class of people that is a drain on the system, has been so indoctrinated that the idea, the, the amount of effort to tackle that head on seems, honestly, it seems like a much larger task in many ways than to pass something like basic income and to increase our tax base here by massive, massive amounts. So I think it seems like we have big challenges ahead of us no matter where which direction we take here. 
and there's yeah. perhaps just different interpretations as to. And look, I've I've said to people on on social media over the last few weeks when I've been engaging with people in the states about about my views, uh, if I was in America, I might have a different approach. You know, you guys don't have universal health care. Your minimum wage is pretty woeful. You don't have. Uh, nearly as well targeted uh, a welfare state as we do. So I might say, look, it, fixing that really is too hard and it's easier to do a UBI. I, I don't know. Maybe that's how I'd feel if I was living in that environment. Um, but here I don't think that's true. And I do think it's an indictment on the on the left, as if you want to use the universal term for, you know, your, your Democrats, our, our Labor and, and Greens parties here. It's an indictment on us that for 30 years we've let neoliberalism win the debate to the point where, as you say, that wealth welfare queen narrative is so entrenched that we feel it's impossible to overturn that and we have to go uh, go and look at, at new things that that are pretty radical and and there have been some pretty convincing arguments as well that a UBI is is in a way a capitulation to cap capitalism. It's saying that the only way of valuing any kind of work or any kind of existence is through cash. Um, you know, this this comes back to the argument about well, it's it supports unpaid work. Well, yeah, that's great, and I think that we need, particularly for women um, who take a lot of time out of the workforce and are not rewarded for that, and end up in Australia with half the retirement savings of men. Women over fifty five here are our fastest growing group of homeless people. That's directly because they they take the burden of unpaid work. Uh, and so I do think you know we we saw a gov our last uh, last progressive government in here finally introduce paid parental leave. You, I think that leaves you guys is the only English-speaking advanced nation on earth that doesn't pay for parental leave. So at least we're getting there. But um, those those things need to be recognised and we do need to reward unpaid work, um, particularly if we're going to close the, the equity pay gap and the equity the, the, the gender pay gap and, the, and gender equity across the board. But I also take some issue ideologically with the idea that the only way of recognising volunteering and caring is by giving people cash. It's it, it's really a pretty big ideological capitulation to capitalism. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I, I feel like one thing that appeals to me about basic income is, is that you don't have to anticipate every every situation, every you know, every person who's in need or who is doing work that should be compensated in some way and isn't. And while cash is it's it's impersonal and it is, you know, a, as you said, a, a capitulation to our, our capitalist system. It, it is just kind of universally valued and effective, and, and so uh, that's that's what appeals to me. Is it was more being ideological rather than practical. I fully accept that. <laughs> I mean, so one thing I would say beyond the specific practicality or even the ideology of of the policy itself is something that. I would say it's come up amongst the many supporters I've, of basic income that I've talked to. Pretty much everyone, regardless of whether you support or oppose the policy, would agree that universal basic income would be a radical shift over what exists today. Yeah. And many supporters see that as a positive and actually feel that we need to have some really out there ideas as a way of pushing people outside the traditional political box. Yeah. and encouraging yeah. bigger thinking. So I, I'm curious what your perspective is around around that interpretation. Oh, I think radical ideas are essential, and um, I wouldn't be engaged in the debate if I thought it wasn't worth talking about. I think it, it's it's great to have the debate because it focuses on focuses on what the issues are and what needs to be done, and that, that there really are 
uh, incredible imbalances in prosperity and the way that, that we treat citizens according to some pretty arbitrary decisions about what's of value. Um, and that growing inequality in, in the um, developed world is a huge problem. So I really value the debate because of that. And I think um, I love radical ideas. Uh, I'm, I, I'm arguing against it because it's worth arguing this issue. Uh, it does make us think about you know, what do we, we might not all agree on ultimately what the solution is, but the thing I've found over the last few weeks since I, since I came out against the UBI, as people have put it, um, is that myself and most of the people on my side of the debate, we all agree on what the problems are. And if we can shine more light on those problems and get more debate around those problems and the different things we can do to fix them, that's only a good thing. And often that's only achieved by debating the radical ideas. So, no, I love the debate, um, which is why... I do engage with everyone that um, that contacts me on on Twitter or however, um, and even the ones that get pretty nasty at times. I always try and answer the questions because the contest of ideas is is. I mean, I, I work in a think tank, so yeah, that's uh, something I think is pretty important. So no, I, I think radical ideas have to be out there. Um, Keynes was a, a radical economist. He's probably my go-to economist when it comes to these issues. Um, I, I like radicalism. I think. Uh, it, it's what shifts the debate. It's what moves the needle, shifts the needle. Um, but yeah, I'm still focused at the end of the day. Of what what can we do now um, to lift people out of poverty? What can we do now to give kids a better start in life, um, to get a better equality of outcome as well as of opportunity for people in society? Um, and that's going to paint me as a communist in some parts of America, but I'm, I'm really not one. I'm considered quite centre left here in here in Australia. Um, but, you know, what can we do now and what's practical? And if that means engaging with the debate and saying, look, UBI, nice idea. In a utopian world, maybe one day we'll get there. But at the moment, let's focus on the BI part for those that need it and not give up on creating jobs and, and responding to automation the way that we have through every other industrial revolution of the last 250 years. Um, but, yeah, let's all agree on what we do agree on, which is we need to redress the balance um, for, for working people and for people that can't for whatever reason work and that need support from the rest of us because this is we're a society. We're not an economy. We're a society. We're not a collection of individuals. Um, we are actually, you know, we, we, we function best when we look out for one another. That was Emma Dawson, Executive Director of Per Capita, a progressive think tank in Australia. So I thought she laid out uh, a lot of the main objections to basic income in a really well thought out way. And I'm glad we got some time to focus on the idea that a basic income, you know, as she put it in the article, robs people of agency. And I think she, she got a better chance to kind of explain what she meant on by that in the podcast. And I think that's going to be really key to advancing basic income is to show people that this is not about giving up on work and that that's still going to be pretty core to what we do, but that basic income is still a necessary part of that. Yeah. And as we talked about recently in the episode with Andrew Yang, either we talk about universal basic income as a solution for what we face today, or if we're talking about it for farther in the future, then yes, we need to have more. We need to talk about what is the answer beyond that, that expecting just giving people a base amount of cash every month, that is not a sufficient replacement for the structure that our labor force currently provides. And even if you believe that we may eventually get to a point where everyone in our society is fully self-motivated and can figure out 
for themselves, what they're going to do, and have new community structures. That world looks so different than what we have today. If, if you're talking about basic income to address automation, I think there is a degree of responsibility to go that one step farther and, and talk about what that other transition looks like as well. Yeah, and I thought, also thought it was insightful to hear from someone who lives and works in a country that does have a more robust social safety net than the US, where it's easier to see just patching up the holes in that social safety net as opposed to a brand new program. I do, st you know, I'll stand by the point I made uh, in the interview that I think a blanket approach is always going to catch people who you're just going to inevitably miss, but it, it is, I think, helpful to have that perspective. Yeah, I found it very interesting, her perspective that it was going to be easier, or at the very least, the right way to try to change people's perspective on deserving and undeserving members of society, and that moving to a place where there wasn't stigma attached to people receiving some sort of welfare or, or social benefit program that was delivered in a targeted way, that that was the more appropriate path to go down than to say, everyone gets this. This is just something that we receive for being alive. That, I, I think that it, it's very hard for me to imagine that being a more viable way to proceed here in the States. Uh, and it's interesting that, that her view is that, that that is the case in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I do agree with her that it's a little bit shameful that the left has not really made a serious effort to counteract the welfare queen idea. Um, but but yeah, at the same time, I feel like it's it's always just going to be there if you have the sort of safety net that we have, especially a, a weaker one. And I wonder if having a stronger social safety net gives more people pride and makes it less of a stigma around receiving benefits from it. But I, I do feel like conservatives in whatever country will, will tend to target those benefits in, to, reduce, um, to reduce government spending. And I think finally, I really appreciated her perspective on debate around big ideas. I think that there are people out there who have different interpretations of what the right way to proceed is. But when you dig in, you see we're actually trying to do the same thing. And if we, if we can actually come to that alignment and agree that we need to be talking about some more radical change, that seems like a really productive conversation to have broadly. Yeah, I was struck by how many of her bigger long-term goals line up with mine. One more thing I'll add. When Emma posted her article opposing basic income on Twitter, it drew a lot of critique, not shockingly. And some of that was productive, but there was also quite a few pretty disrespectful responses, questioning her knowledge and understanding of the economics here. Obviously, as we just heard, and what you could have figured out with, I think, literally 10 seconds of Googling, she has thought a lot about these issues and is clearly an expert in this space. And I think it's important to stress, if we're going to win over folks to this idea, we need to do so respectfully. For people who disagree with us, challenge them, but do it in a way that's not demeaning or patronizing and actually prompt a real conversation. Yeah, and just to add on to that, it's impossible to know how much of that response was fueled by the fact that she's a woman. But 
you know, just based on what we know about the world, I think we can assume at least a little bit of it. So I, I would just ask basic income advocates and anyone else to just be sensitive around those issues and to give people their due respect. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davison. If you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. And please do tell your friends. We're always looking for new listeners. We'll talk to you next time.